Our scripture reading comes from Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. And it's there we find these words. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known, that our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. The Lord has established a decree in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which God commanded our ancestors to teach their future, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and rise up and tell them to their children, so that they shall set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep God's commandments and that they should not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. These are our sacred stories. Moses, it's time for you to read a good novel. These words were said to me by Ben Kluster. He was a student at Grinnell College in Iowa when I was a religious life intern there. He was an English major and a student coordinator of the community meal. I'm not sure how particularly religious Ben was, but for sure he was very spiritual. Over the 11th month, 11 month period I was at Grinnell, we enjoyed each other's company and conversation as we talked about social justice, race, religion, our families, our lives, politics, spirituality, Grinnell, you name it, we talked about it. Apart from the community meal, we frequently broke bread together and solved all the world's problems, as two 20-year-olds could do. As we walked back to campus um, one sunny afternoon, he spoke those words with a smile on his face. Moses, it's about time for you to read a good novel. I don't remember my response. But I can't imagine the conversation afterwards. Me, I hate novels. I don't like fiction. It makes no sense to me. I like real life, trying to make sense of this world. Ben, all the more reason you should read a good novel. <laughs> me, I'm a serious guy. I enjoy essays and biographies and theology and history and nonfiction. It's about real stories, real people. It's about truth. 
novels can do just the same. They open up your mind and take you places and allow you to imagine possibilities. Help you relax. Relax your mind, relax your brain, and not be so serious all the time. Ben's admonitions to me that sunny day broke through a wall that I began to construct in sixth grade when I was required to read Treasure Island and The Little Prince for school. I still haven't read those books. I resisted reading those novels, in part due to the fact that they had no pictures in them. You see, it was fun to read stories when pictures appeared in the book. Chicken Little, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, Winnie the Pooh, Curious George, Bear's Name Bear series, Dr. Seuss, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Those are some good books to read. And that's what I wanted to read in the sixth grade. In the eighth grade, that wall building was paused as we read Farewell to Manzanar, 1984, Animal Farm. You see, while these books had no pictures, they were rooted in history. They were grounded in history. And I loved history. But the wall construction resumed in ninth grade as I fumbled through Romeo and Juliet, and I wondered why it took Odysseus so long to get home in the Odyssey. <laughs> and the fact that I remember the Odyssey and how long it took Odysseus to get, long, to get home says something about that book. <laughs> but where I had an image or a picture or the person, place, or event or story that was being referred to, or if I knew there was a purpose for the story, the Odyssey, then I could attend to pictureless stories. After I was baptized as a child, I was given the Bible in pictures for little eyes. And it was that book that made the reading the Bible a bit more bearable, an exception to the rule that made that stories without pictures were not worth reading. Because I had the pictures from the book in my mind, I can imagine the scenes from our sacred book. I read the Bible as a kid and a teenager periodically, in part because of the picture book, but probably more so because I was concerned about not going to hell and trying to satisfy the angry God up in heaven um, as expressed by those around me. Because if you didn't read the Bible, you didn't know where you were going. In college and seminary, when I had to read the Bible for a grade, it was the picture book and my summer in Israel that made Bible reading more real and relevant. Again, where I had or where I have an image in my mind of the person, the place, the idea that a story was referring to, or if I knew that the story had a purpose, then I could focus my attention on the text without the need 
of the pictures in the book. Returning to scripture. I will open my mouth in a parable. Tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and the Lord's might and the wonders the Lord has done so that they shall set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Jesus spoke in parables, short stories grounded in the lived experience of his hearers, the listeners. These stories had a purpose, a message. The parables were effective at telling the story, establishing a decree, appointing a law to keep God's commandments, to be faithful to God, and to hope in God. You see, these biblical stories, these parables that Jesus told are so powerful that we still read them today and we consider them sacred. They are sacred in part because the parables, messages, and other biblical stories are relevant even though we are far removed from the people, the persons, the places, the worldviews, the circumstances from which these narratives emerge. And while we are far away from those places and that time and that worldview, God is still doing glorious deeds in this world, in our lives, in the life of our church. God's might is palpable in this theologically diverse congregation where no two people believe the same thing, where we don't share per se a common creed, or there is a common creed, but it's not that one that you say that we have to follow this. And every Sunday, and even now, as I look around at all the faces in this room and stare at each of you, I see evidence in each of you of how God is still working. Evidence that God is here, present with us in the here and now. And what God is doing for us as a congregation and in our individual lives is a worth is a story that is worth telling over and over to our children and to the generations of covenant members past, present, and future. And even today, in our worship, Hearing the sounds of a newborn baby is a sign of hope, God's hope. Hope that this congregation, long after you and I are gone from this place, that this congregation could hear by God and those, and, and those faithful founders some 60 years ago will still continue long after we are gone. 
I can't tell you how to tell this story. Your personal stories and covenant story. For one of the wonders of this community is that we are a collective of individuals and families with diverse beliefs about God. There are those of us who believe in a very personal God. God walks with us. God talks with us. God tells us that we are God's very own. And then there are those of us who have no belief in a personal God, a deity who is constantly acting and intervening in human affairs, yet we believe there are those of us who believe that this deity does exist and that this deity has created, still creates, and sets into motion a spirit of love, hope, and community. And then there are those of us who don't believe in God's very existence, but come here because meaning is made in community. And ritual is a way of bringing order into chaos. The past into a modern world. And all in a non-threatening, simple space. And then there are other beliefs about God among us. I don't know what those beliefs are, but what I do know for myself is the story of how God is working in my life that has kept me here for 18 years. That story, your stories, our stories, as I see them and as I hear them, and what this place does for me and for all of us in this room gives me hope. Hope in God, hope in myself, hope in this church, and hope in this community. Pastoral theologian and professor Andrew Lester says, when used theologically, hope describes a person's trusting anticipation of a future based on a God who's trustworthy and calls us into an open-ended future. This God, this God promises deliverance, liberation, and salvation. I'll say it again. Hope describes a person's trusting anticipation of the future based on a God who's trustworthy and calls us into an open-ended future. This God keeps promises of deliverance, liberation, and salvation. Lester also reminds us that hope, as we've said earlier today, it's not something wishful, magical, fanciful, but biblical hope, Christian hope, is rooted in reality, grounded in reality, grounded in our stories, grounded in the stories that God has done with us and continues to do with us, 
grounded in reality and the acts of the past. Hope and storytelling goes hand in hand. Because in however way you believe, we believe about God, however way we describe God, we are living witnesses to God's glorious deeds and works and might. We, you, all of us collectively, we are all the image of a person, a place or event in this life, in this present day, to the listeners of our stories and our story. And our story of hope in God is one where God calls us to live authentic lives, to be delivered from actions and thoughts that seek to divide and separate, and to experience hope in the now and in the future, in a life that is lived in love, community, and belonging. By telling our stories, by telling our stories of the glorious deeds of God, we tell stories about the wonders of creation, a majestic mountain with flowing waterfalls, the vastness of the sea, and all kinds of sea creatures swimming in it, and the splendor of the very trees and blue skies outside of the very windows of this sacred space. These trees that provide food for the wildlife turn a variety of colors in the fall, drop those leaves, and then come alive again in the spring. See, by telling these stories, by telling these stories, these glorious acts, these glorious deeds of God, we, we, we speak about finding community where we're told not what to believe and how to believe, but how we are encouraged by the various ways in the various ways that we experience the holy. By telling our stories, refreshing them, and telling them anew, we gain a deeper sense of self, purpose. We define our place in this world and answer the existential questions of who I am, whose I am, and what is the meaning of this life. When we speak about God in the context of our stories, your story, my story, our story, covenant story, we define for ourselves and the listener our sense of holiness, purpose, our sense of brokenness, regret, despair, frustration, and our sense of healing, restoration, and forgiveness. And by our speaking, especially if the story is good and compelling. The listener and generations to come gains a better sense of who we are, who God is, who God is not. And if you tell the story about God's glorious deeds, however way those deeds reveal themselves to you, then the listener receives another way, an open-minded way, a refreshing way of understanding God, of knowing God. By telling these stories, we commit ourselves to this world, to this place, to ourselves, to our families. We commit ourselves to the world, 
before world that God is with us. God is in us. God is bigger than all of us. And hope comes alive in God's name.